Good evening, everyone. My name is Brad Brown. I am the discipleship pastor here at Shades Valley Community Church, and it is um, my joy to welcome everyone to Reformation Night, an evening celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we want to be clear uh, that while this service is held at our building, uh, this is not a service put on by Shades Valley alone, uh, but by five churches, five churches that all love the Word of God and are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, we at SVCC would like to give a special welcome to all our brothers and sisters from Christ Fellowship Church, Grace Fellowship, Homewood Cumberland Presbyterian, and, and Raleigh Avenue Baptist Church. It is our joy to be worshiping alongside you this evening. And if this was a youth event, you would have all cheered when I said your church's <laughs> name. Now, we've gathered this evening because um, on October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a document to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The document contained a list of 95 theses for debate, but Luther got more than a debate. His writings would actually be a spark that ignited a reformation that would sweep across Germany, Europe, and eventually the entire world. The word reformation comes from a Latin verb, which means to form again, to mold anew, um, to revive. Luther and the other reformers did, did not see themselves as inventors or creators. No, they, they saw their work as a rediscovery or recovery. Uh, they look back to the scriptures and to the early church fathers, uncovering many things but central was a rediscovery of what Luther would call the church's true treasure. The church's true treasure. A treasure that had been covered up. And that treasure was and is the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This rediscovery of the gospel is at the heart of of the Reformation and has often been summarized in five solas or five alones. According to the scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. And so tonight, we want to celebrate the Reformation by worshiping the triune God and meditating on the central truths of the gospel. As we hear brief reflections on each of the five solas and sing songs rooted in their beautiful truths, may we see that we all stand on the shoulders of our sinner saint brothers and sisters who have come before us. And may we see that like the reformers, we are called to be continually reforming our lives and our churches according to the word of God. Sola Scriptura, Nick Seaborn, pastor of Raleigh Avenue Baptist Church. Well, Martin Luther messed up. 
The Augustinian monk who should have been a lawyer messed up. And what do you think messed him up? I contend tonight that what messed Martin Luther up was that he understood the Bible as the first and final word of God for the believer. He had labored for years in learning what the Bible had said. I mean, he was a monk, for goodness sake. And then he was appointed to teach that word. So not just learning and studying, but then actually had to articulate what the word of God said when he was appointed in 1512, five years before the Reformation and the hammering of the 95 Theses to the door. He had to teach that word of, as he taught theology in Wittenberg. It was then that he took a vow to always teach and preach purely the Holy Scriptures. And he never broke that vow. He started in 1512 and taught through the Psalms and then taught through Romans and then taught through Galatians and then taught through Hebrews. And he was grabbed with the truth of God's Word, particularly what it meant to be righteous. And so, it was through this habitual teaching of God's Word that Luther pursued a deeper, better, and more faithful understanding of God's Word, which then led to him, I think, being able to lead to the Reformation. And so, I'm not just up here first because I'm the youngest and the most handsome of the five pastors that's coming up here. But I'm speaking about sola scriptura first because it's from sola scriptura that everything else follows. It's from sola scriptura that all the other solas follow. If I can speak generally about the reformers, they were grabbed by God's word as the sufficient authoritative word for their lives. They believed, confessed, lived, and taught what we call sola scriptura, meaning that the Bible is the sole written revelation. The soul written divine revelation and alone can bind the conscience of the believer absolutely. See, they saw the harmful practices of the Roman Catholic Church and how the priests were twisting and turning God's word to say what they wanted it to say. And whether that meant selling indulgences or harmfully teaching people God's word wrong, what the reformers saw was that the priests were not simply preaching God's word wrongly, but that also led to harmful, very harmful pastoral care. And so, these priests were saying that the power and authority and revelation of God was in their laps. And the reformers came along and said, no, no. The objective was to correct the, pa the papacy and that the power, the authority, and the revelation of God's word. Revelation of God was caught up not within man, but in God's word. And the word of God has this power, this authority, and revelation because the Holy Spirit is inherently tied to it. So God's word and God's spirit go together like peas and carrots, if I can put it in a silly way tonight. And it's because the Holy Spirit is working that then Luther was able to preach God's Word as the Word 
of God. So we're not talking about, when we talk about sola scriptura, when we talk about God's word, we're not talking about some fickle, arbitrary word. We're not talking about a teenager's Twitter feed. We're not talking about an older person's slipping mind. But we are talking about a true and trustworthy word. We're talking about a faithful and forever word. And because God's word and God's spirit go together, it follows that God's word accomplishes God's work. And so we hear in Isaiah 55 and 11 that God's word will accomplish the purpose that God himself has set forth for it. Whether it's judgment or salvation, whether it's breaking down or building up, whether it's pronouncing death or giving life, God's word is sufficient to accomplish God's work because it's God's and not man's. And so, as we seek to live out sola scriptura, if I can put it that way, I have three points. Of course I do. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. You saw this coming. Point number one, I think. First, we must believe what God has said about God's word. If I could put it down in two verses, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the woman of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. That is, that the revelation of God Almighty from God for the believer is so that he would know him and to know how to worship him. Secondly, we must be people shaped by the word. If anything comes from tonight, I pray and I hope it is that you would want to read your Bible well and better, more faithfully, and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you as you engage in its study and that it would lead you to a lifetime of faithfulness to God and God alone. That can only be done by God's work working in your life. And maybe you might be overwhelmed tonight to kind of think through what it means to be faithful for the rest of your life. It might be overwhelming for you. Be faithful today. And if Jesus would tarry and it comes tomorrow, be faithful then. But allow God's word to do his work in your life and to shape you. Lastly, the word of God must be the first and final word in our lives. So we're constantly being enamored with many, many words. There is 24-7 cable news, Lord help us. There is television that never goes off. The internet never shuts down. We have books that we can read over and over again with magazines and blogs. They're constantly speaking. And some of this can be good. and Some can be bad. But what is the first and final word in your life tonight, friend? I'm not proposing that we have a nuda scriptura, that is scripture alone approach to life, because I think then we would be giving up gifts that God has given to us in church history, hearing what others have said about God's word and the church herself in doing life with one another as brothers and sisters. But what I'm contending for is the, for the word of God to be sufficient and authoritative in our lives. The first and final word. It must be the first place that we go to orient ourselves for right belief that leads to right living. And it must be the place that we go to for the final authoritative word in our lives. Surely the grass will wither and the flower will fade. Man's kingdoms will come and they will go. But the word of our God, brothers and sisters, will stand forever. 
And so, absolutely, let us robustly sing with all joy how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid up for you in His excellent word. What more could He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled, and may God's word be first and foremost in our lives. Amen. Sola gratia, Derek Jacks, pastor of Homewood Cumberland Presbyterian. When we open the scriptures of God, when we seek to hear God's voice, uh, it doesn't take too long before we find ourselves at a crisis. When the Holy Spirit begins to operate in our hearts, when the Holy Spirit begins to talk with our minds and to show us who we are, we realize very quickly, just as Isaiah did when he came before the Lord, uh, that there is nothing good in us. Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I am a person with unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. Holy Scripture will undo us as we are. Martin Luther was undone by the Scriptures because he took them seriously. That's a huge thing for us to say and understand today. And a question that I have for the church and a question that I have for myself Do I take the Scriptures seriously? Because if I take the Scriptures seriously as being the Word of God, directed towards the people of God, then my soul, which goes, uh, which is filled with all kinds of desires and all kinds of pursuits, it must stop and take notice. We all have to have that Isaiah moment where we realize that Scripture tells us that we are filled with woe. That we are not worthy. Luther's pursuit in his life, partly to, as he pursued the priesthood, was to find some bit of assurance. Some bit of assurance that what the Word of God was telling him, that he could find some solution to the problem. If woe is me, then therefore there must be some relief somewhere. And so as he pursued his life as as a priest, he was in some way seeking salvation. He was seeking out something to do. Now, Christians, as we, as we congregate week in and week out, hopefully we enter into sanctuaries, and hopefully when we enter into the sanctuaries, we are yearning to hear the Word of God for us. But oftentimes, what the church uh, ends up doing is just cataloging all of the things in Scripture that make us feel good on the inside. All of the promises of God. When I graduated high school and college, I seemingly got the same book from several family members that was 365 promises of God for my life. And when I flipped through that book, though I loved getting the books, when I looked through them, it was filled with things that made me feel good on the inside, and it was devoid of the Isaiah-esque passages. Whereas Isaiah stands before the holy God and he struggles and he says, what am I to do, God? The Apostle Paul had that same type of uh, battle going on in his heart and in his mind. And in the book of Galatians, he is speaking to a group of Christians. They're all Christians. Now, they're two different types of Christians. Some Christians are Gentiles, others are Jewish. 
And as people are following Jesus, one group of those Christians, the Jewish Christians were telling the Gentile Christians that, that their life of faith wasn't enough, that they had to do something else, which describes every single one of our journeys of faith, is it not? Trying to do something else to give us assurance. Which is why Paul is so combative in Galatians. It's why Paul is so frustrated. Because when he sees people taking the gospel of Jesus, which is filled with grace, which is announcing the, the embodiment of God's grace and the flesh of Jesus Christ and, and the giving of that flesh for his people, when Paul sees that the people of God are adding to that grace and trying to say, no, that that's not enough, that you need to do things in your body, there are, there are things that you have to do which will identify you further as a Christian. That's why Paul gets so livid and frustrated because when anytime we add our efforts uh, to, the, to the person of Christ and the work of Christ, we end up destroying the work of Christ altogether. And so Paul is frustrated because the message of grace, the message that that we are saved only by grace. It is such uh, something that we all have to understand and know. Grace is not just a word that we, we carry around lightly. Grace isn't a word that we just we use for our benefit. Seemingly, Paul was having to deal with some Christians who when they heard about the grace of Jesus, meaning that Jesus... Had, had solved the mystery of how humanity and God can be made at peace together. And that message of peace is that Christ is actually the body of that peace and that His action and His life was given for us and that that is sheer grace of God. That we no longer have to worry about how we can please God. That instead we trust in Jesus and in the grace that he has given us in him? You see, when we, when we get confused in our lives, we, we hear the grace of, of Jesus and we say, yeah, that's great and good and all, but, but what really do I have to do? And you see, that's the curious thing about grace. The curious thing about grace is that it, it answers the question, it it answers the question of what must I do in order to be saved? And the answer to that question is, it's already been done. It's already been done. And as we live our lives as Christians, we're always finding ourselves on this spectrum. How should we live? What should we do? Or do we do good works in order to be made right before God? Or do we do good works because we have been made right by God. As we live our lives as Christians and as we, as we see ourselves uh, as recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ, our lives takes a fundamental change. Our lives take on a completely different nature. You see, because as we live our lives, when we trust in Jesus, we realize each and every day the same realization that the Apostle Paul had. Which I would say that if Isaiah was in the room... With Paul, as he is, is, is writing this, this word, he probably would have said, Amen. The same Isaiah who was like, Woe is me as I stand before a holy God. When he, heard the, when he hears the gospel of Jesus as voiced by Paul, he even says amen to this. 
But in Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul's life had taken on a completely different dynamic because of the grace of God. Paul says this in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, that is the grace of God. That is the invitation that we have in Jesus. <coughs> so as we live our lives, I want to encourage each and every one of you, do not fear. Do not be at crisis trying to figure out what you have to do in order to be saved. Because, brothers and sisters, it is by grace alone that our relationship with God has been restored. And therefore, our lives take on a different flavor. As we live our lives, we're no longer bound by, by having to do this or that in order to be saved. But instead, we live our lives humbly and joyfully, understanding that the great gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ is real. And that any crisis of conscience or crisis of heart that we have in knowing if we are saved at all, it is all put to rest in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace alone, friends, that we have life. Amen. Sola Fide, Bart Box, Pastor of Christ Fellowship Church. If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be anathema. That is Canon 12 from the Roman Catholic Church's Council of Trent, which convened in 1544 in response to the Protestant Reformation. If anyone shall say that it is by confidence, by faith alone, by which we are justified, let him be anathema. It's easy for us now 500 years removed from 1517 to forget how radical the ideas of the Reformation are. And at the very heart of that Reformation was the idea that a man or woman is saved not by anything that he does or anything that he does not do, by anything that he has done or anything that he has not done, or anything that he will do or anything that he will not do, but rather a man or woman is saved solely by his or her faith in a crucified and risen Savior. We are saved sola fide by faith alone. For Martin Luther, salvation by faith alone was not only a biblical revelation, it was a personal revolution. Years before Luther found the answer in Romans, Luther sought the answer in Rome. In fact, Luther was sent to Rome because he was driving his fellow monks crazy with his constant confession, his incessant anxieties, his great fears. The year was 1510. Luther hiked to Rome, almost 700 miles through a severe winter. As Luther tells it later in his life, when he first saw the city, he dropped to his knees and said, Hail, holy city of Rome. But the point of Luther's trip in 1510 was not sightseeing. It was his soul that took him to Rome. 
Luther had come to find relief for a guilty conscience. And in that quest, Luther came to what are known as the Holy Stairs, which were allegedly the same stairs that Jesus ascended when he appeared before Pontius Pilate in the Gospels. The church taught that the steps had been moved from Jerusalem to Rome, and the priest claimed that whoever knelt on those steps and prayed on each one could have their sins actually forgiven. And so Luther, being a good monk, ascended them, bowing and repeating the Lord's Prayer on each and every step. But on reaching the top, Luther says, later in his life, he rose from his knees and he looked down and he said despairingly, who knows if it's true? Luther had not found peace with God. But what Luther could not find in the holy city, he absolutely found in the Holy Bible. Namely, it is, that it is by grace that we are saved through faith, and that none of this is our own doing, but all of it, the grace and the faith, are the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Friend, how can you be right with God? How can you stand before God on the last day, the day of judgment? The truth is, we will all stand before God. Just as surely as we have work appointments and lunch appointments and dentist appointments, we also have an appointment before the God of the universe. It is appointed unto man, the Bible says, once to die and then the judgment. The question that all of us ask that everyone asks, that everyone of all time asks, is how can I be right with this God? The Bible advises us not to look around, but rather to look upward. Not to look inward, but rather to look outward, to look to Christ in bold, naked, and unadorned faith. Luther said it this way. He said, God sent his son into the world, heaped all the sins of all men upon him, and said to him, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross. In short, God said to Christ, be the person of all men, the one who committed the sins of all men. And faith is simply looking to and trusting in that accursed but ultimately vindicated person as our only comfort in life and in death. Indeed, it is that vital union secured by faith alone that ensures that our faith is actually never alone. Immediately after heralding justification by faith alone, Paul tells us what kind of faith that is. He says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, laying hold of Christ is transformative. It's like touching a live wire, or to use a biblical illustration, it is like touching the hem of his garment. Everything is different. Nothing is the same. All things become new. And all of this, every bit of it, happens by faith and faith alone. Solus Christus, Joel Busby, pastor of Grace Fellowship. So hear these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him. In him. 
I mean, these are words that occur over and over again in the New Testament. In him, in Christ, in Jesus. The faith that Bart talked about is a faith that is fixed on an object of faith, which is Jesus Christ himself. So sola Christus, Christ alone. As a preacher, it's always fun to talk about your favorite thing. About four to five years ago, my wife Mandy and I were sitting around one night talking about spiritual things, talking about the life of faith. And we had one of those moments in that conversation that I wonder if you've ever had. As we were talking, some doubt began to creep in. And this doubt began to wash over us that night. And the doubt went something like this. What if we're wrong? What if we're missing it? What if we are believing the wrong stuff? What if we have the wrong facts or somehow the wrong information? What if we're not doing it right? What if we're missing some kind of action or activity that Christians are supposed to be doing? Does this all feel right? Are we feeling the feelings that we're supposed to be feeling if we're feeling close to God? Are we having the right experiences? Now, Mandy and I aren't the first ones to experience these doubts. Doubts like these actually ran rampant in medieval Europe. And the Christian world was, in a way of thinking, living under this kind of crisis of doubt. But see, that night we remembered a precious and deeply comforting truth and one that I want to remind you of tonight. And it's a truth that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. And it goes like this. Christianity and the Christian life isn't about cold mental assent to the right facts or information. Christianity and the Christian life isn't about making sure you've accomplished the right list of actions. Christianity and the Christian life isn't primarily about feelings or even a set of emotional experiences, no matter how palpable or powerful or even the lack thereof. Now, let no one misunderstand. Our faith contains precious doctrinal truths to be understood. It comes with it an ethic, a way of being and a way of living in the world, a way of love toward God and neighbor. And it comes, of course, packaged in the full range of human emotions. But hear me tonight. Our faith isn't mainly about these things. Our faith, our hope, the good news of the gospel, is about the person of Jesus Christ and the work the things that he has accomplished in real time and in real space for you and for me. And I'd be remiss if I did not remind you of those things tonight. According to the scriptures, God became human flesh in Jesus Christ and he entered into our situation. He lived a perfect life of active obedience before God the Father. He died on the cross that he might forgive you of your sin. He defeated the power of sin, death, and Satan in being raised from the dead. He ascended at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there we're told he will indeed come to judge the living and the dead. And at that point, if we've grasped hold of him, been united to him by grace through faith, then we'll be raised, given resurrected bodies in a new heavens and a new earth. And while right now you and I see through a mirror dimly, we're told that we will actually see his face. We will know him fully and we will enjoy him forever. This is the gospel. And it has all happened in and by and through Christ alone. John Calvin captured it like this. 
Every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back. He was captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness. He was marred that we might be made fair. He died for our life. So that by him and in him, fury is now made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned to light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, division united, disgrace and shame made noble. In Christ alone, assaults against us are now assailed. Force has been forced back. Torment has been tormented. Hell transfixed. Death is now dead. In short, in Christ, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness and all misfortune. For all these things, which were to be weapons of the devil in his battle against us, and the sting of death to pierce us, are now turned for us into exercises for our profit. If we were able to boast with the Apostle Paul, saying, O hell, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? It is only because by the Spirit Christ promised us, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, and we are seated among those who are in heaven. Therefore, we can be content in all things, comforted in all tribulation, joyful in every sorrow, glorying under any insult, abounding in all poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient amongst evils, we can be alive even in death. This is what we should seek in the whole of Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him. In him, in him, solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, Jonathan Hafes, pastor of Shades Valley Community Church. According to scripture alone, we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But to what end? Like for what purpose? I mean, wh why does God do this? Why? Why send his son incarnate in flesh to be a sacrifice for sinful humanity? Why pour out his grace that we might receive it through faith in Christ? What's the point of our salvation? The reformers answered that question with an ultimate declaration. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. This is why we're saved. To display the glory, the goodness, the greatness, the beauty of God. Like that's, that's the point. Everything else we've, we've talked about so far serves to get us there. I, I just want us to see two things very quickly about this soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. I want us to see, one, this is the only logical conclusion. Like out of everything we've, we've been walking through, if all that's true... This is the only conclusion that's logical. And secondly, I want us to see that it is the greatest conclusion possible. This is the ultimate heart of the good news of the gospel. It's what makes the gospel gospel. So, first, this is the only conclusion that's logical. Like, we just think back 
through the journey we've taken through the four solas before this, we saw that the gospel has been made known through Scripture alone. Like, God has revealed himself. We, we didn't figure this out. We didn't make this up, calculate. This had to be revealed, and God has done it through Scripture. He has made himself known. So he alone can get the glory for that. Nobody else can. He's done it through Scripture alone, so he alone gets the glory. And what he's made known through Scripture is that we are saved by grace alone. It's his free gift. We can't merit it. We can't work for it. But he gives it, and the giver gets the glory, so he alone gets the glory. We've seen that this gift, we receive it through faith alone, which, which Bart pointed out for us in Ephesians 2, 8, that faith itself is also a gift from God. Faith is not something we, we, we work up or we muster up and, and inside of ourselves. No. Uh, Ephesians 2 actually begins by describing us as being spiritually dead. And in verse 5, it says that we were raised to life by God. 2 Corinthians 4 says that we were spiritually blind. And by the time you get to verse 6, it's God who shines the glorious light of the gospel into the darkness of our hearts that we might behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God has done this, so he alone gets the glory. And that faith, as Joel told us, is in Christ alone. It's not in ourselves, but in Christ. Our faith is not in, in our work, but in the completed work of Christ on the cross. Our faith is not in our own righteousness, but, but we need an alien righteousness like Joel talked about, a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. We need the righteousness of Christ. Everything needed for our salvation has been accomplished in Christ, so we don't get any of the glory. He alone gets the glory. By Scripture alone, we know that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Did you see how that works? This is the only conclusion that's logical. But second, this is the greatest conclusion possible. That you are saved for the glory of God is the essence of the greatness, of the goodness of this news of salvation. The, the reformers all knew that this was the ultimate good news of the gospel, that our salvation was for the glory of God alone. The reformers, as we've heard, many people tell stories tonight, they, they lived within a religious system where salvation was centered upon man's glory. It was, it was all about my achievements, like, like Martin Luther having to make his way up those holy stairs. It's all about my achievements, my works, my holiness that I attain. All, all this striving for one's own glory never satisfied. It actually, like we heard, it left, it left reformers like Martin Luther terrified. He, he literally said, Martin Luther said, and I quote, the quest for glory can never be satisfied. It must be extinguished. Like, like Luther recognized he could never be good enough. He could never do enough. He was too aware of his own brokenness, his own sin. He knew his own glory no matter how much he sought it, it could never satisfy. So, when the reformers turned from what they had been taught, 
to, to the teachings of Scripture alone, what, what they found was that living for one's own glory was not actually the essence of salvation, like they'd been told. Living for one's own glory was not the essence of salvation. They actually found that's the essence of damnation. To turn from being satisfied with the glory of God, to turn inward on oneself, and to seek one's own holiness and glory, to lift oneself up and try to be satisfied simply within oneself. That's the essence of what it means to be damned, separated from God and his glory and satisfied in him forever. When the reformers turned to scripture, what they found was that all things had been created for the glory of God, including us, including mankind. Mankind was created in the image of God for the glory of God. Uh, scripture tells us that all over the place, in places like Genesis 1 or Psalm 8 or Isaiah 43. We are created for the glory of God. Everything was, was created centered on and satisfied by the glory of God. And here's the reason why. Because God loved us so much that he would not give us anything less than the best. And the best is himself. He gave us himself. And, and turning from satisfaction in God to anything else, especially to seeking glory in ourselves, that's the essence of condemnation from which we need salvation. And that is the deepest good news of the gospel that the reformers rediscovered. It's the deepest good news of the gospel still tonight that we celebrate. That according to scripture alone, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. In other words, through the gospel, God has saved us back to nothing less than the best. He has saved us back to satisfaction in him. 1 Peter 3.18, I think, says it best. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So that, like, why did he do it? Christ crucified, suffered. Why? So that he might bring us to God. So that you get God. Is your eternal satisfaction forever. This is the only conclusion that's logical and it is the greatest conclusion possible. You, I, have been saved to be satisfied by the glory of God in Jesus Christ forever. This is the good news that the reformers helped recover. It's the good news that we still celebrate now and forever. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory.